Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. Today's episode is going to be from our archives. Nikki Moyer, detective with the Burlington Police Department, will be speaking about domestic violence. Recognize that this topic can be triggering to some of our listeners. You can always go back and listen to a previous episode. You can hit the pause button and take a break. And you can wait for the next episode that's coming soon. So please use discretion. I am Nikki Moyer. I'm with BPD. For those of you that don't know me, just briefly, because I have very limited time, I became the expert in DV when I took the DV investigator spot for the PD back in 2016. And I was in that position solely until January of 2020. So it's many, many years of soul altering work that I did. And through all that was a lot of self-training um, because domestic violence is in all accounts, a very new criminal charge in our state. It was mandated in 1991, um, which I know I'm aging myself because I'm like, well, that's really, it's kind of like 30 years ago, but still in the scope of the, of where the nation was at, Vermont was one of the last states to implement a law saying you cannot abuse your loved one. <clears throat> so we have come a long, long way. COVID hit and we backtracked about 10 years. So um, that being said, it's awesome that you guys even have what you have. Um, Nick sent me, I guess it's your state protocol, whatever this thing is. Um, and the fact that you even have anything about strangulation is huge. So because I'm very limited, I'm not going to go through this lovely document. <clears throat> if you haven't read it, take a look at it, especially if this is a new thing for any of you. Um, it is very thorough. I was very impressed with it. Um, I am listed in the state of Vermont as an expert in this field through mostly I learned to do. I didn't have our own PD has very limited training. The police in the state of Vermont have very, very limited training on how to handle domestic violence. Um, I worked with the state's attorney's office solely in learning what they need to do to prosecute these cases. What more can we do as law enforcement? And in reality, not every patrol cop is going to be able to learn exactly how to handle a DV case. Um, there are some that I worked with victims for three years before I was able to put together a criminal case. And it's mostly just because they're not, they're not ready. Unlike our ag assaults downtown where you have two random people who are drunk and just go fisticuffs and beat each other. We call you guys, you look at injuries, put band-aids on, whatever, and we call it a day. Domestic violence can be 20 years worth of stuff that somebody has lived through. It can be two weeks worth of something. And then you have to look at it as Domestic violence is also sexual assault. Domestic violence is also human trafficking and all of those other components. So in the 30 minutes, I, I cannot give you every little thing, but I will gladly answer any questions that anyone has ever. Um, I'm easily accessible. I'm always around. Um, but before I forget, not that she's forgettable, uh, Senior Officer Bartle is our new, what we call the Dimension DVPO, Domestic Violence Prevention Officer. I hate the title, we're not preventing anything. Um, she she's now the investigator for this caseload. Um, she took over for Corporal Sweeney, he went to VSP. Uh, she worked under me for, a, that's weird, not really under me. She worked like with me when she was on light duty for a while um, as a new officer. So um, I put her through the ringer a little bit. She knows I'm accessible to her as she jumps into this field, but she's gonna be an awesome resource for any of you. That being said, where you guys come into play, we're really fortunate in Burlington that where you go, we go, typically. I know things are changing a little bit now, but 
any type of call where you guys are being sent to, you know, any type of major injury or any report of any type of disturbance, you're getting at least one cop. Um, so that does alleviate some of the burden that maybe some of the more rural units or EMS units have to deal with where they might not be getting a trooper for 45 minutes. And you guys are going to be the first on scene, right? Here we kind of merge together. But where you guys can really be of use to us is when you are working with a patient. They're going to want, they're going to be more prone to talk to you guys than one of us because as soon as they start saying stuff to us, we don't have a choice necessarily when it comes to domestic assault. It's the, it's the burden of the state to push the charge. So as soon as a victim says, he punched me, they, they no longer have a say in what happens after that and we're making an arrest. Um, knowing what I know now, that's not necessarily the right thing to do. The state chose to do it that way because statistically it does prevent further abuse. But you've also now put somebody who's already experienced trauma who's already terrified, and you've now essentially told their abuser that they said something, and they're not ready for that, right? We don't have anything else in play for them as safe housing. Um, what about their kids? What about finances? All of the other things. So when you guys are assessing patients, you guys know what to look for when it comes to strangulation, right? You know all the medical stuff, the oxygen stuff, what could have happened. I don't know how much trauma training you get when it comes to like emotional trauma. So, you know, trauma informed interviewing and what that looks like. Um, do any of you guys do that? Like talk about trauma informed or that type of. Um, good. So that's what I'll key in on the next couple minutes and then I'll just take it for questions because it's going to be easiest for me. What's really important for the medical field to know about trauma is when you're speaking with a patient, when they're talking to you, you might be immediately thinking that, yeah, that they were strangled, they lost consciousness, that they have a concussion or, you know, something else going on. Maybe they're under the influence when in reality, because they're not speaking to you coherently or they're speaking in a heightened, like um, very bulleted, fast pace that that you're, you're thinking brain injury when in reality, they just experienced something really traumatic and their brain is going into self-preservation. So even when we get statements, we cannot get a full statement immediately after an incident. We have to wait that 72 hours of sleep cycles so that the brain starts kind of healing and processing what happened in order for us to even get a coherent like line of events. So that's important for you guys when you're assessing them is that they may truly have a brain injury. They may have something happen where they lost oxygen, but it also could be simply just trauma. Um, the other thing you're going to see on scene when you're talking with patients is be pay, pay attention to who's around um, for your safety, but also when it comes to DV, human trafficking, sexual assaults, most likely if the officers are not distracting an individual or there's too many individuals, not enough cops, all the things, there's going to be somebody hovering, especially if the victim's female. Um, and that is a clear sign that that female is exposed to something, whether it's human trafficking, um, whether it's DV, that person that's hovering is controlling everything that she says to you, even though they're not saying a word and it's through intimidation. Cause most likely that person is the person who's her handler. If it comes to human trafficking, they're the person running her. Um, 
so she's not going to say much of anything. Or if what she's telling you sounds extremely scripted of, you know, like, I'm not sure what happened. I woke up and I didn't feel well and I fell down the stairs. If it sounds like it's a certain pattern of words that seems like it's repetitive or something that's just something that's said over and over, that's also an indicator that there's something else going on in her life. Um, and the best way to maybe circumvent that is try to urge them to get in the ambulance because you guys have control who enters that bus, right? So if you can, if you start seeing that or there's somebody hovering or there's somebody answering questions for her, try to make that recommendation, especially with it's winter out, right? It's cold. Like, let's just get into the warm bus. We'll fill out some paperwork. And once you have her away from something, then maybe start posing some other questions. You know, of, I know you said you fell down the stairs, but your injuries don't match up to that. Is there something else going on? This is safe. Nobody else can hear you. There's, you know, see if they'll start talking. And if they start talking, you guys stop talking. Let them speak. No matter, even if it sounds like, let them keep talking. The more that they will talk and you remain silent, they're going to fill that silence. It, but it does tell us that we need to start implementing something else, whether it's Bartle, whether it's calling advocates in, whether it's our CSLs that we have now, which I'm going to email Nick a whole list of resources that he, he can send out to all you guys in regards to who you, who's, you guys can use. Um, the CSLs that we have now, community service liaisons, um, are this is kind of what they do, and this is why they're part of the city now, is to help fill in that resource gap. Um, but I'll make sure that he has a list of all that contact stuff so you guys can either print it out, put it in the ambulance, whatever you want to do with it. But we have resources in the state to help people. They have to make the choice to want the help. That's a whole different conversation. The way that I found to be successful when dealing with somebody immediately after a like an event like that I just introduced myself. I'm like, hey, I'm Nikki. I, I understand that something had happened. I wasn't there. And just say, are you okay? It'll get their OODA loop to A, you're asking if I'm okay. You're not asking about what just happened. And that question alone gives them a little smidgen of control back. Um, just start talking about just general stuff. You know, if you happen to see, like if, you, if you're in your house and you see pictures of kids, Bring it back to that. Where are your kids? How old are your kids? Have them, just, and it will get them to focus off whatever just happened, and then they're going to start talking. And before you know it, they're going to start talking about what just happened. Because they might say, you know, yeah, I have my kids, but I lost them to DCF because X, Y, and Z keeps beating me. Or they'll tell you, you know, I don't know who that person is. I just know them as... You know, Jay-Z. I don't know where my family is. Those things, that those responses you're getting are crucial to understanding that something is not right and just start building a rapport with that person. Um, and if they say they're not from here, say, where are you from? You don't have to talk about the immediate issues in which you're there for if you're seeing that, they, that they're just kind of all over the place that they have the big wide eyes. Be gentle, be calm, and be 
like use a quieter tone of voice as much as we can. And I know it's hard when we're all like running around, we got radios going, we're doing all those things. The more you can calm that environment, the more that their brain will start calming themselves. And then they're just gonna start talking. It is really crazy how it works. Um, it goes against kind of what I was trained in the academy on how to talk to people. Like you immediately, what happened? Tell me what happened. You can't with this type of stuff, especially if you're dealing with people who have experienced DV for many, many years. And I'm gonna hate, well, yep, Bartle and I are the only females in this room. You guys are gonna have a really hard time building that rapport. You may be told to go, you may get kicked at, you may find somebody cowering from you because even if you could just go to touch them for the gentlest of things, try to talk that person through it. All I have to say is like, I'm not here to hurt you. I really, I just want to see this. Can I touch you? And let them kind of start controlling that a little bit. I know you guys have a lot more females on board, which is awesome. If you do happen to have a female like on scene with you, if you're starting to see that from somebody, just bring them in. Maybe they can start guiding through that. And it's not a hit at any of you or that you guys are not successful. It truly is because most likely that person has been brutally traumatized by a male. Statistically, that's just where we're at. Um, domestic violence nationally, statistics have shown that first responders are the key to breaking that cycle. You guys have just as much of a chance of saving a person's life as we do in these situations. And it really does come down to that first immediate, hey, I can get you to this place. Bringing other people into it, resources. Mary McAllister, she's not law enforcement. She is simply an advocate with 30 plus years of experience in this field. She's at BPD. You can shoot her an email. She will then start bringing in a team of people. The more people that we have willing to talk about things and willing to say something, the more success we're going to have at actually saving people's lives in these circumstances. Um, DV with significant injury is the best way to investigate them on our standpoint is like a homicide, because essentially that's what it is. And strangulation, if you're ever on a scene with a victim who has been strangled, that is the last step in that person's life before they're dead. Statistically, that's what we have. The minute a significant other strangles their loved one to the point that they are as medical or anything, evidence has shown that the next incident in which law enforcement is brought in is because that person is dead. That's just where it comes down to. And you guys are going to get called for strangulation. We're going to call you to scene as soon as anything, even if, for us, we look for stuff. If you see scratches on necks, like that are fresh, little scratches. That should be a huge red flag for you guys that they were strangled, even though they're not saying they were, because that's from their nails, trying to pry the arms, the hands, the whatever off of their neck. So those are huge, those are just huge things for you guys to see that you can be like, let the hospital know. If you guys don't wanna tell us, that's fine. Tell them, they'll tell us, because they have to. That's the other thing with this stuff is research has shown that if you have a victim who, A, you've been able to separate enough that's going for treatment, that victim has 24 to 48 hours to make those decisions to get themselves into a better space, right? 
But that's what we all can do is give them every amount of tool possible for them to make those choices. Because in that 24 to 48 hours is because they have time that they're in the hospital, that they have to go through the whatever, the discharge. We all know we sit up there forever. They can start thinking. Then they have people talking to them, right? Yes, the person who just did this to them is also thinking and trying to get in, probably getting angry or this, that, the other. But he can't, doesn't have access to the hospital. They're not going to just let that person just walk right in. So there's crucial times in which we can get a victim that help and out of the situation. When I did that work solely, I, I drove people out of, this, out of the city. I drove them down to Barrie. Mary McAllister drove people to New Hampshire because our hotels here are not safe. They're all riddled with drugs and sex trafficking. So now I'm going to take a DV victim and put them in that hotel. It doesn't work that way. So if I have somebody who's finally willing in that 24 to 48 hours that I'm investigating a case, yeah, I need her to be safe. And I say her because 99% of the time it is a female victim. I need her to be safe so she can stay on board so that I can make an arrest, especially if she's ready for that. But I've also driven people out of the city that I never put, I never put paperwork into the state's attorney's office. Because I learned how to guide that conversation with the victim without her giving me the information that forced my hand. That's what I learned through the four years of me doing it. And it was hard. Because God knows I wanted to put cuffs on these guys. And, I, and when I did, they're all still in jail. But sometimes that's not the answer that these, that these victims want. They just want to be safe. And that's what, you know, Bartle's going to learn those techniques of how to bridge that line very finely. But you guys, you don't need us to save these girls that we're seeing. You really don't. It can just be learning how to talk to them. There's so much stuff on the internet. If you're truly interested, you can reach out to me. You can just Google trauma-informed, you know, interviewing trauma-informed techniques for DV to help you, like, with some of those questioning lines of questions. Um, to develop it. And if you're just not a good communicator, and there's people that's not, we have cops that suck at communicating. They know it. So they'll call somebody else in to do that. And, and truly, yes, is what they were saying, trauma knows trauma. I was only successful in this position because of my life. And I did what I did because I needed to for myself. I didn't have the opportunities before when I was the victim. And I refused to let other people feel that way. That's why I do it. That's why I still do this work, even though I'm in the detective bureau now. I've stayed fresh with DV. I'm, it is soul crushing, but it's the most satisfying thing I've ever done when I watch these women two years later have their kids back. They're clean. They have a place to live. They have a voice again. I lose sleep every night, but they can finally live their life. And you guys can be all part of that. You already are. So it's just bolstering some of that trauma-informedness, and it's, it's the same thing. And it's, it's, it is everywhere here in, in Burlington. It's really sad. But it is every door that you guys go to with us or that you go to alone, I guarantee you there's some sort of trauma there. It's just a matter of how brutal it was um, as to if you're seeing major injury or not. A simple questioning that you guys, they may not even have an injury. You might just go to an anxiety attack. But maybe that person had an anxiety attack because they just got a text message from a guy who just got out of jail who almost killed them before. That's DV. And that can be that critical line for you guys. If they tell you that, you don't have to call us. There's no crime. But there's resources.
and I'll make sure to get those to Nick and he can send them out to you guys and do with it, you know, what you want. I personally do it all the time. Uh, officers aren't trained that way. We, you have to want to be that type of person to do that. Um, as I've explained to Bartle that, that the position that she is in, it's my baby. I like it's, it's the most important position I think is at that police department, but it is also truly the most trauma filled position that an officer is going to deal with. I can go to dead bodies all day long. I'll go to gunshot wounds. I'll go to people who's blasted their heads off. Okay. What I can't do is hide street. I still live with that because that woman I talked to a week before and I begged her, I begged her get a restraining order and she wouldn't. And I blame myself. So for me, yeah, I take that uniform off all the time in that position. Cause nobody wants to sit in front of that, no, not Bartle. Nobody wants to sit in front of that right there. Ammunition, radio, you know. Who, yeah, it's just, you don't want to sit there. And my statements are two hours long with these women. Because I'm here, I don't just talk about the one incident. Because that's not what DV is. It is not an isolated incident. If it was, that's assault. And I would send over 20-page affidavits. Because the judges need to know, the attorneys need to know what these victims have been through. We're going to wrap it up there for the day today. Thanks for listening, as always, to the Code 321 podcast. Make sure you're telling your friends about the episodes that are coming out. Go back in the archives. Take a look at some of the episodes that you haven't listened to yet. If there's any other topics that you'd like to see or people you think would be great on this show, you can always email me, nick at netsbt.com, N-E-T-S-B-T.com. We have a lot of great courses coming up this summer. Make sure to check our website, netsbt.com, for all the listings. We'll see you out there.